Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. And on this show this week, we're going to do something unusual. I'm going to interview Paul Rickard and I'm going to ask him, you know, are tech stocks in the buy zone? Uh, I'm also going to ask him why he bought Zip a couple of weeks ago and, you know, is he in the money or out of the money with that? And I'm also going to talk about why I'm investing in what might be called a risky product, but it's a high return product. But Interestingly, it's kind of investing in a safe group of stocks, but it could be risky. So I'll be fessing up to about uh, one of my investments that uh, I've only recently engaged with. So, and also we want to do this on a regular basis on Thursday. So if you've got questions about any stocks that you'd like Paul and me to talk about, send it in to us and we'll give you a, 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 a website address where you can actually send those questions to. Now, we also will be talking on the program to Eliza Owens from uh, Cord uh, Logic, and we're going to be talking about whether these floods have actually potentially affected the potential, the future prices of properties in the regional areas, particularly the ones close to where all the floods are. There could be a lot of people who once upon a time th thought they could actually operate a business or as an employee in their regional areas, but maybe they have to think about the implications of things like bushfires and floods, what happens to the internet, the connection to the, the business uh, with the rest of the world. All those sort of things may well need to be re-evaluated by people who think that they can actually work from home. And then finally, Paul Rickard is going to catch up with Ying Yi and Cheng of Kulabar Capital and also the Switzer High Yield Fund to see what the Fed decision about raising interest rates will mean for interest rates in the US and more importantly, interest rates here. Um, I, I couldn't actually do the interview, so Paul's jumped in to do it. But being a former bond trader, and uh, Ying Yi being a, a bond trader or bond player right now. Should be an interesting interview. That's the show. Let's kick off now with Paul Rickard and myself. Well, Paul, this is going to be a regular spot where I sort of you know, talk to you about some of the big issues that we think are driving the market. And I'm also going to invite people to send their questions in as well, which yep. we can do each week as well. But I, I think there's a, an interesting story. The market's up today. What do you reckon is the, the main driver? Well, obviously the US, Peter, but with the Fed. I mean, uh, an interesting reaction there. I guess it's always a case of, uh, you know, buy the rumour, sell the fact. In other mm. words, probably the reverse of that, you know, sell the rumour, buy the fact. They got very bearish ahead of, um, you know, what, what the Fed did, which was pretty predictable. Hmm. I guess they took comfort in the US from the fact that it seems to be um, serious about uh, increasing rates and bringing inflation under control. Hmm. And that was as much around the turnaround. And our market's done pretty well the last, uh, you know, we've outperformed the US. We're still seeing uh, commodity prices are pretty strong despite, you know, the couple of days of volatility. Yeah. Uh, and, it's not, and the money in our market is going into financials and resources, and that's pushing the rest of the market up. Is They're our biggest sectors. Is there a bit of peace talk progress in this uh, bounce back of the market too? Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it because that's why we sold off. Not why we sold off in, in January. The sell off no. in January, which is really most of the fall, was actually about interest rates, right? Yeah, the and Fed and 10 yep, rises yep, and, and stuff inflation. Like that. Yeah, okay. And so we then had the, uh, you know, the, the, the conflict in Ukraine only became a reality late in February. So mm. we, and I think most people in the market didn't put too much credence in it actually happening. 
And so we've seen that sort of flow onto oil prices, other commodities, supply chain issues, now the Fed talking about what that might mean. So I think there's, you're right, Peter, there's part of it's relief because that last bit is, uh, is a function of Ukraine. But I think it, the, more, the bigger the important reason offshore has been around the Fed seeming to take mm. a harder line. Mm. And in Australia, well, we're benefiting because you know, commodity prices are higher and, uh, and, and our banks are doing well. Is there also a bit of the fact that oil prices have come off about 23% over the last week? And there must have been an enormous fear that oil price rises could create recessions and really hurt some businesses that are oil dependent. Yeah, I thought that's all <laughs> part of it. I think it's interesting as soon as you hear listening to talk back radio and you hear the ABC talking about the oil price yeah. on the very day it's fallen about 25%. But uh, <laughs> yeah. anyhow, everyone's worried about petrol prices. But yeah, I mean, look, that's that's got to be better news uh, globally um, for, 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 global, for global growth, for yeah. lower oil prices. Okay. So a lot of this is understandable that a lot of the negatives have now turned to positives. Um, and But why are tech stocks doing so well, Paul? That's a, a well, they're doing well in the US. They're doing better in the US. We're, we're still struggling here, Pete. Yeah. Uh, and I think, look, when I say better in the US, they've come off a long, long way. Yeah, well, and, PayPal and was at $306 you know, over the last year, and it's now 107 So it's been smashed. Yeah, absolutely. Some of them have been absolutely smashed. So we've seen a recovery of sorts in the yeah. US. Uh, not as much here, and I think the Australian market's just a bit more... I think we're going through a bit like what they're going in the US, they're dividing the quality up, and, and, and we're seeing a bit of recovery in the quality in our market, right. but some of the others are, are perhaps struggling a little bit. And, and I, I guess we're going to need to see more positive leads from the US before people in Australia mm. are going to fly back into tech. I mean, the, the mm. sectors in, in, in where the focus is is uh, you know, financials for good reason because uh, they're nice and reliable. Mm. Higher interest rates is a little bit of a short-term um, help to the sector. And secondly, resources because mm. you know we've seen oil, we've seen iron ore, we've seen all the base commodity mm. prices. Sure, they've come off up and down a bit of volatility the last week or so, but they're still higher now than they were back at the start of the year. Okay, so there are going to be beneficiaries of a, of a global economy that gets better and less threats because oil price is coming down. And, and, and ultimately, if there is a, a peace solution of sorts, that's going to give the market another lift up as well, Paul. But what I'm, I'm interested about is that you actually bought Zip last week. Uh, so you're yeah, still probably underwater, Pete. <laughs> you are. <laughs> with a rally today. But, yeah, uh, but you, you didn't expect sorry. to make money instantly. No. Do, you, do you think the tech stocks here will eventually, uh, maybe later in the year, ha have a a logical improvement as fund managers have made their money in say iron ore yeah. and you know, go somewhere else? I think they have a little bit of improvement. I mean, I think, yeah, remember our two biggest sectors are financials and, resor and resources, right? Mm. That's over half the market. Yeah. So when there's a lot of money going into those, it's got to come out of some other sectors. The tech sector's still pretty small. I think, you know, I, in tech, I would be staying to the market leaders, you know, your zeros, your, your wise techs, arguably, mm. your next DCs. I think the best stocks can, can recover. Yeah. The, some of what, I would say the rubbish, but some of the second tier players, I'd be a little bit careful but of. But you bought Zip and Zip but I don't. I think Zip's more than the second tier player, Good Pete. point. And, yeah. um, so I think with Afterpay now being bought by Block, it's really yeah, our, our yeah. best local it's, company. It's really one of our best local companies. So, yeah, um, yeah, tech smash. And, yeah. and, and that's mainly because that has been so smashed. Okay. So, so therefore, your view is eventually the better tech companies will actually get a lift in the market. Yeah. All right. So that's part of the reason why you've done that. Now, uh, interesting story overnight. Um, uh, Tencent up 23%. Now, yeah. 
Baidu up 39%. Now, these are the companies, when you talk Chinese tech tigers, these are the, the yep. ones, aren't they? Yep. What do you think is going on there, Paul? Well, look, uh, I mean, a huge rally yesterday in China, uh, in Hong Kong in particular. Um, yeah, it's had, had some really tough, tough few weeks, right? Yeah, and, Hong Kong's been smashed. Absolutely smashed, mm. right? And, uh, you know, the, late, the, the fear of, as recently as 24 hours ago was lockdowns in, you know, in place in couple of really big cities down yeah. in the south. So, you know, the people were knocking their China growth estimates way down. I think we've just, we've gone too far. We've had a huge recovery. Look, uh, you're probably right, Pete. This is... Um, you know, Ukraine's not going to be such a big issue. I think that's what the market thinks. These lockdowns, okay, they're going to be tough for a while, but yeah, yeah they, they'll, they'll get through them. Um, well, the I think of... markets, we always know, go too far, yeah. come back too far. And I think we're seeing the classic in both. Right? Well, a couple of months ago, I took a punt that Asia will eventually come good. So I bought the Asia ETF. So yep. I'm out of the money, but I noticed it's up 15% today. Yeah. So <laughs> it was roaring back into it. Thank God for that. And, and I, and, and, but Paul, there is a, a prevailing view out there from the, the pundits I hear on Wall Street that get past the war, get past interest rate rises, they do have a, a very positive view on emerging economies. And if, and if she, President Xi wasn't terrorising his tech companies, yeah. uh, next year or two could be okay for emerging economies. Yeah, look, I, I know they do, Peter. I still struggle with that a little bit because I still think the US is, 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 is king and... Uh, I think the political risk is still quite high there. So, and I think that's what we've largely seen. The reason they did get so badly smashed was essentially political risk, right? Yeah. That people viewed that, uh, that what was happening, you know, the Ukraine was just the next step because mm. what could going on there could happen in China. Mm. You know, and it's really there's not enough consideration to the political risk and the crackdown by the Chinese government. The disappearance said, of Jack Ma. Yeah, all, all sorts He's of things, back. right? So um, I... I, I I'm not as bullish as they are, but I do recognise that that sector's been smashed yeah, and yeah. so recovery is probably... Do emerging normal. economies do better when the US dollar falls? Yeah, typically yeah. they do. Now, so and we, and, think, and, we think our dollar's going to go, do it? Well, and, we do, yeah. but then the US is also increasing interest rates. So Correct. that's why I'd be a little... That's why I'm not as confident about, about emerging economies. Mm. So, uh, and what you have seen in the last... Um, you know, six months, despite our view on the Aussie dollar, the US dollar has been strong, yeah. largely because interest rates are going up, mm. right? That's where the money's been going. And when in the US dollar is going up, that's not so good for emerging economies. So yeah. I, I'm not quite in that camp, Peter. I still think the US is the place to be. Yeah. But, you know, I can see the argument that the US is getting, will get expensive again. Okay. Now, I'm, I want to talk about something else I've invested in. But before I do that, do you reckon by the end of this year, our market will be up. Look, I do, and I'm with you on that. I, mm. I, I've probably hosed down my estimate a little bit, but I mm. still think growth, the fundamentals are still right. Growth is still stronger. Yeah. Here in the here and abroad, we're going to benefit from higher commodity prices. Uh, our major resource companies are being incredibly disciplined, so yeah. they're going to shower us with great returns. Mm. Uh, and you know, the financials are probably going to mm. be okay. So when the major sectors are going okay, that's good for the yeah, market. So right? financials, resources, yeah. energy, yeah. All, all going to be good for our overall index. So now, and I'll put, I'll put one caveat on that. I mean, I think the big risks, one of the bigger risks, bring it back home again, is still electoral risk, right? Now, yeah. we're currently, you know, we've got a very low target leader of the opposition, nothing mm. nasty being said. But the probability is, you know, you know, the polls were wrong before, but the probability is he will be a change of government yeah. in May, right? Yeah. 
And so we may take a few months to actually see what that actually means. Mm. Now that may or may not work for our market. Mm. Normally, you know, Labor governments are not as friendly to the markets, mm. but let's just be a little, and we might end up with the worst outcome, Peter, which is a sort of hung parliament. Yeah, so let's true. see a little bit, that's my one concern. I think there's more electoral risk now, or political risk in Australia than yeah. there was okay. a few months ago. But so I'll put that caveat out okay, there. Okay, but, but you do, you wouldn't be surprised if from here, our market was up 10% from here. No, I don't, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't still say we're, we're, we're in bull market yeah, and yeah. the US is the same, right? Yeah, and, 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 the, and the interesting thing is a point I made earlier uh, early this year and late last year was I, I thought we would play catch up and we'd probably do a little bit better than the US market. And so far, yeah. we've fallen less and we'll probably rebound better. So the safe play to me for someone who's out there who wants to be in this market is an ETF that buys the ASX 200. Because you're, you're buying our best 200 companies, they'll be driven by those big sectors you talked about. So that's a pretty safe, interesting play. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think buying the top 200 companies is like a safe stock, yep. isn't it? Yep. So if you want to dial up the risk, and by the way, I'm dialing up the risk in a small way in my own portfolio, and I'm not recommending this as no advice, but for thrill seekers, there's a thing called GEAR, G-E-A-R, comes from beta shares. It's on the stock market. It's like, an, you can buy it like an ETF. Tell us about that. Yeah, look, it's like a, just a, it's like a margin loan without being a margin loan, Peter. Yeah. There's no margin calls, right? This yeah. is just an ETF. That's why I like it, no, no margin calls. <laughs> right. It effectively has about double the gearing, double yeah. the leverage, so that if the ASX was to go up, say, um, 10%, five, 10% mm. this will, should go up about 20% in price. Yeah. Conversely, if the ASX was to fall 10%, you lose, you know, you'll lose about 20%. So yeah. it has somewhere between about 2 and 2.5 times yeah. the level yeah. of gearing. So it's volatile. Right? It's volatile. It's pretty, it's, look, it's secure, it's investing in, it's just cash and it, it yeah. buys a small amount of futures contracts, the rest stays in cash. There's an external trustee. Yeah. It, it, this, is very, this is very solid, but, yeah. the, but it just carries about double the level yeah. of market risk that you normally get. Yeah. So, and, because, and because I've been arguing, I think the market goes up, um, just like when I occasionally buy tech stocks, they're a really small part of my portfolio. The core of my portfolio are great quality, dividend-paying stocks. That's a call. But I sometimes take a risk on tech stocks when their price is low and whatever. So Zip becomes an attractive one, a Tyro becomes an attractive one. They're, they're good companies, but they've been built up. But I like the idea of gear because it's like a safe product, name of the index, yeah. but it's multiplied. And, yeah. you, and that's the risky part. Yeah, so it's just a multiplier on the index. So yeah. it's a safe product that provides multiplication. And multiplication means more opportunity to make profit. Yeah. But also more opportunity to make loss, right? That's so right. that's so a don't win if you try so if you go into it and you'll lose. But if you win, you can send me a Christmas so card. If you're a conservative or a defensive investor, yeah. it's not for you, yeah, right? right? You've got to be a bit of a thrill seeker, right? Yeah. You're a thrill seeker, Peter. So oh, well, for <laughs> you that, can be a thrill yeah, seeker. Yeah, for right? ten percent of my portfolio. Yeah. yeah so ninety yeah. and that's the way I invest. Ninety percent is really safe stuff. Yeah, I would I've got a lot of ETF for the ASX two hundred, which I've bought whenever the market's been smashed, I go in and buy that. But this is just a, a little bit of a risky play because I think the market is a little bit over negative at the moment and there, and there should be a bit of a rebound. Yeah, look, really easy to set. Just trades on the ASX. It's the ASX code is gear. G-E-A-R. G-E-A-R, right? Yeah, yeah. It sounds really cool, doesn't it? Yeah, L-A gear. Yeah, it's, it's got good liquidity and pretty low uh, bid offer spreads. So okay, cool. uh, we're not recommending, of course, but uh, it's, for the, it's a very simple way to get leverage in the market. Yeah, and, if, and I guess if you want a safer way of playing the market going up, just an ETF like IOZ, 
IRZ the, the or VAS IS. from Vanguard or SDW from uh, yeah. from Spider. So yeah. Yeah. Are there any other investments you've done recently which you haven't revealed to me? No, could... the main one's been Zip, and I'm out of the money still. <laughs> so um, he's honest at least. Uh, look, I like most people probably a bit battered from investing in tech companies, yeah. but. Uh, Look, I don't do a lot of it, but that's... Look, I still think there's value there. I, I, as you say, they're now our, our biggest independent, mm. uh, good business in the US. Mm. Uh, I thought the acquisition of Cecil was a good one. Yeah. I guess the market's just got a little cold in the sector and, uh, yeah, it'll take a little while, but mm. uh, it's up today and I guess it's uh, there's more upside still. And, and the big influence on the markets are fund managers who really have to report... Do they report... Quarterly or half yearly? Well, a lot of fund managers are reporting monthly, Pete. Yeah. So you know you they can't, can't make a mistake. For they long. can't make a month. And yeah. so when, when you get when you get the two biggest sectors mm. and most of the action occurring in resources and financials, they can't ignore it. That's right. Despite as active as they might want to be in tech stock, yeah. uh, you know all you need is a, a couple of months or a quarter of way below market performance yeah. and yeah. you get crucified. So, so the short-term investor really drives the market much more than the patient long-term investor. Yeah, absolutely. And and so that's what should provide opportunities for long-term investors because the short-term investors, they can be very right in the short term, but yeah. they're often quite wrong over the long term. And that's what uh, you and I look for a little bit. Exactly. That's a very important message. Uh, it's Paul Rickard. If you want to know more about Paul, you can be a subscriber to the Switzer Report. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Peter. To get an understanding on What's happening to property prices, uh, particularly with some unusual things like floods, uh, we're talking to Eliza Owen of CoreLogic. Great to see you, Eliza. Thank you for having me. So, Eliza, let's go to some of the depressing issues. Um, a lot of people were worried that some of the great spots around northern New South Wales and Queensland were um, becoming very, very expensive. Will the floods affect the, the prices of properties in these areas? I think so. If we look at what happened to Brisbane's property market back in 2011, the Brisbane market as a whole saw a little bit of a decline also in the context of higher cash rates. But if you look at areas that were particularly inundated, like the suburb of Chelma, for example, there was a much steeper decline in property prices from 2000 uh, trough going to uh, a fall of a, about 18% in total mm. um, and a recovery that took about eight years. Uh, I think that this time around, it's hard to say because the market will be going into a downswing anyway off the back of a tighter interest rate environment. But we've also got these compounding factors like the increased frequency of extreme weather events. Anecdotally, agents are telling us that this is already shifting some buyer preferences. And even more elevated properties within these markets that have been affected, like on the outskirts of Lismore, say, people living in areas that haven't necessarily been flooded inundated have still seen local services, schools um, put out of action because mm. of these extreme weather conditions. So it's certainly not good for these property markets. And I think the extreme floods that we've seen really speak to, uh, I guess, the urgency around climate change. Yeah. 
um, but also potential reform for insurance and, and the finance sector more broadly in terms of um, protecting people's most valuable assets and their property. Yeah, it's my notion, and it may well be an exaggerated one, but you know, the, 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 the heartbeat of this massive um, house price rise, in particularly in northern New South Wales, the heart was Byron Bay. Like, like every trendy who's ever you know, walked the face of the earth wants to live in Byron Bay for some reason. And of course, as it becomes more expensive, there's a rip, been a ripple effect for all the areas around it. Now, uh, it seems to me that you're, in what you're describing, the climate change implications, the, the, the kind of economic effects of floods spreading right across the, the region, some people who might have been thinking, oh yeah, I could probably run my business from Evans Head or someplace like that or, or um, Ballina or something like that, might be thinking, oh, hang on, it's not as easy as I thought it would be because these events come along and all of a sudden my, the internet's down and I can't sell my stuff online, which ultimately would probably take some potential buyers away, which could ultimately affect price. Is that a fair analysis? I think that that seems logical to me. Mm. I, I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about large structural disruptions to the market that interrupt these patterns of growth in the same way that the normalization of remote work through the pandemic was a massive structural change that enabled these shifts to the regions in the first place. Mm. This has been a pick up call about the impact of climate change and I think long term would drive more of a premium in markets that present maybe more of a climate refuge, Tasmania being an example of that, um, the, the south coast of New South Wales, or even parts of Sydney and, and the Blue Mountains, even though the Blue Mountains is subject to bushfire conditions in terms of a, a lower climate, uh, lower temperatures, I feel like that could be an appeal for buyers long term as well. Yeah. Let's let's go and look at the, the capital city that a lot of experts in your industry um, think uh, have a pretty good outlook, namely Brisbane. Brisbane ha is seen to have a, a pretty good outlook. And if we rule out the areas in Brisbane you're, you're talking about, obviously those areas can bring down the average price rise of house prices in Brisbane. But in all those suburbs that aren't affected, they're still perceived as being good value. Are you guys expecting Brisbane house prices to do pretty well? Yeah, I, I would say so in areas that aren't inundated. As I say, there could be a spillover effect in terms of the CBD and major services um, being disrupted from, from flooding conditions. But at the end of the day, I think Brisbane still has a lot of appeal from a relative affordability perspective. Um, yeah. Particularly for you know typical income earners in Sydney, uh, are probably less and less likely to be able to get a detached house specifically. Um, with the typical detached house in Sydney now at one point four million dollars, for someone looking to buy their first family home and just get more space, I think Brisbane still makes a lot of sense. But as I say, it could um, potentially drive a, a premium 
in those areas of Brisbane that are more elevated and considered less prone to these kinds of flooding events. If you want to see the differences in house prices in Sydney and Melbourne compared to Brisbane, you only have to watch that program, Love It or List It, uh, where invariably you see that the, the prices of, of properties in Brisbane, com comparable properties, are substantially cheaper. And I'm sure a lot of people see that and, and wonder whether it's worthwhile making the trek up north. Now, by the way, I remember when Peter Beattie was Premier of Queensland, there was a very big trek from south into the southeast Queensland. So south of Australia, like New South Wales, Victoria, into the southeast uh, corner of, um, of Queensland. Is that still happening now? Yeah, internal migration trends have shown that basically the COVID era has produced this trend of less people leaving lifestyle markets of, of Southeast Queensland uh, and more people going from capital cities to areas like the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast. Yeah. And it's also produced new million dollar markets. So a typical house around the Gold, Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast are now sitting at that million dollar mark. Yeah. Historically, the Gold Coast could really spike up and really fall as well pretty hard. Do you think this new trend of people being able to work from home might actually put a bit of a flaw under the fall in, in house prices on the Gold Coast? I think that is not just for the Gold Coast, but what I would expect for parts of regional Australia more broadly. Mm. There's a you know, we get asked about the sustainability of the regional price growth. Um, and there's a difference between the sustainability of the growth, because you can't have 26% growth year on year on year, and the sustainability of the prices around this kind of sticking point. So I think that the major structural shift we've seen in remote work has, uh, I, I think, permanently created an upward shift in prices, but the cycle can't reach those same highs forever and ever. So uh, the expectation is that the rate of growth will slow down over the next couple of years. Mm. And then as we were discussing earlier, I think that climate change is still gonna be a major kind of wild card into the sustainability of, of growth in, you know, flood prone areas, bushfire prone areas, things like that. Eliza in today's newspapers, Shane Oliver is quoted saying that he, he thinks it would be very hard for people who are either buying a place now or have bought recently to see that the prices of their houses double over the next 10 years. Do you think that's a, a fair call? I think it is a fair assessment just because of the interest rate environment that we've been moving into. Mm. At the end of the day, the most important factor driving the direction of house prices would, would still be the, the cost of debt. So, you know, it makes sense that as we start to tighten monetary policy, that that's going to see a, a slowdown in growth rates. Mm. Um, it is important to remember that reduction in the cash rate can be redeployed. Um, you know, we saw it in 2010 when we saw a couple of moves up in the cash rate and by mid-2011 it was coming down again. So it just depends, I guess, what happens in the economy and how the RBA is set to respond to that that will really determine the extent of growth we see in asset values. Okay, final question. What cities do you think will experience the biggest falls and the biggest rises over the next year or two? And be 100% mm -hmm. right too, Eliza. 
Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, um, look, Sydney's probably set to have the biggest declines, but it's worth noting that Sydney also has the largest gains in an upswing. So it's a more volatile market, which is why it tends to see deeper declines. Um, I think that we will probably see a broad-based slowdown in the housing market off the back of a change in the cash rate. So it's not going to be a question of which cities are going to rise, but it could be a question of which cities are going to be the least um, worse off or, or see the least um, declines. So I think potentially smaller capital cities like uh, Adelaide, Hobart, for example, um, would, would probably see less of a decline just because there has been that long-term um, migration trend for Tasmania and also a positive trend for South Australia as well in, in recent quarters. Uh, and again, they present relative affordability for people in major capital cities. Um, so they, they would be my picks. Great stuff, Eliza, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's Eliza Owen of CoreLogic. Well, last night, the US Federal Reserve, as expected, increased the cash rate by 0.25%. But uh, it also issued a press statement, had a press conference after the meeting. And to get uh, a take on what it means potentially for US markets and also Australian interest rates, I'm joined by Ying Yan Cheng, who's the Portfolio Management Director with Coolabar Capital. Ying Yi, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Now, did we learn anything from what the uh, Fed said, either through its uh, press release or in the uh, statement that, or the press, release, press conference after the uh, actual announcement? Yeah, look, I, I think Powell delivered quite a, a well-balanced, um, you know, FOMC. It was very much in line with, I think, what the market had sort of been expecting, um, in which case that, you know, obviously, the market had started pricing in, you know, five to seven sort of rate hikes. Some of that rate hike sort of trajectory had been walked back because of the recent sort of Ukraine-Russia um, situation. But in terms of what Powell delivered and in terms of what the dot plots are now telling us, um, it would imply seven hikes. And, you know, judging by the market's reaction, post FOMC, um, you know, it, it looks like that's very much in line and we, we saw risk assets rally. So I think it was very balanced. It was largely what people were expecting. Obviously that 25 basis points hike was something factored in, you know, earlier on, um, you know, maybe a few weeks ago, um, actually before Ukraine and Russia, when Bullard was quite hawkish, potentially, you know, with a 50 basis point rate hike as a contention, um, this obviously, you know, had been walked back. And, and I think, you know, Powell was, you know, balanced in the sense that he acknowledged that, you know, Ukraine to the Russia would have the implication of, you know, a short-term inflation shock, mm -hmm. but down the track could have the the impact of, you know, affecting uh, growth down the track. And at the same time, I think, you know, what's really sort of important to consider with respect to this FOMC meeting is that, you know, the Fed is obviously going to be looking at, you know, market conditions or financial conditions, I should say, really, um, and using that as a gauge. But at the same time, inflation very much is, you know, front and centre for their focus. So they, uh, we had one increase last night, the... Um 
the infamous dot plots, I might get you to explain that, uh, sort of suggests another six increases this year. What would that take the uh, Fed funds rate to by the end of uh, this calendar year? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, that arguably sort of takes that to potentially just under 2%. Um, so, you know, I, I think if you're saying, yeah, there's seven rate hikes for 2022, then essentially we're looking for about 1.75%. Um, you know, walking back um, on central bank, you know, on the actual central bank purchases, so walking back on QE, um, taking back those purchases and, you know, reducing the balance sheet also has the equivalent of, you know, supposedly, you know, one rate hike as well. So really that would imply sort of eight rate hikes, but really, yeah, just under 2% would be where that would imply. And I suppose if you look at, um, you know, and you haven't asked me this question, but I, I'm sort of um, expecting this, but if you do look at what the market is expecting in terms of, you know, the, the terminal sort of cash rate, mm -hmm. um, that's still a bit sort of off where the RBA sees their neutral cash rate being. So that neutral cash rate is roughly around 2.4%. Um, and, you know, the Fed really sees that rate going to 2.8%. So that would argue for them, you know, at the end of their hiking cycle, moving to something that is more of a contractionary stance rather than neutral. Yeah. And uh, just talk about the sort of the quantitative, um, getting rid of the bonds or at least reducing their balance sheet. So what, what did they say last night in terms of uh, any program to actually start to uh, rein it? Well, uh, yes, I guess sell bonds back into the market and reduce the size of the Federal Reserve balance sheet. Yeah, so, you know, on that particular front, um, so firstly, sort of speaking, um, you, you could say, okay, um, you know, on that front with the rate hikes, um, this implies, you know, you know, I suppose um, another sort of 150 basis points from here. Mm -hmm. um, and then regarding quantitative tightening or QT, which is what you're sort of talking about, um, you know, I, I think that is probably sort of foreseeable, um, you know, we might see an announcement either at the May or June policy meetings um, this year. So, you know, and balance sheets shrinkage is likely to start the subsequent month. So, you know, if we get some sort of announcement in May, um, then yeah, we'll probably sort of expect that in June or June, then July. Um, Powell did say in his press conference that details about QT plans would appear in the March FOMC minutes and they'll be released in three weeks time. Right. Now, a lot of people have accused the uh, US Fed, and for that matter, I guess the Australian Reserve Bank as well, of being behind the eight ball when it comes to um, you know, inflation and being a bit slow to act. Do you think that um, the market could walk away last night and say, that, well, you know, we think the Fed's now sort of lifted the ante and, and has uh, upped its game here a bit? Um, yeah, judging judging from, you know, collectively the committee, um, it does feel that there are seven committee members that want to tighten faster. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I, I think, you know, there's the centre who want, you know, seven back-to-back -back 25 basis point rate hikes. Um, 
And then, so that's about five members. And then you've got a group that want fewer than seven back-to-back -back rate hikes, that's four members. And then there are some that want to include, you know, 50 basis points rate hikes. Um, and so really what this is saying is that there is, you know, very much a, a mix, but in anything in favor of, you know, something much more aggressive, actually speaking as well. Um, and then on the Australian sort of front, look, you know, the inflationary sort of numbers or pressures here, are slightly different in the sense that we're obviously not getting the, the same degree of inflation that we are like in the US, um, where we saw, you know, core PCE, for example, you know, above 6%. That's highly concerning. But what we are seeing and what we've seen from, um, you know, this week, I, you know, Thursday's labour force data domestically in Australia, is that there is no spare capacity left in, um, in our labour market. And so that will have the impact of you know wage inflationary pressure especially in the absence of any immigration back into Australia at this current point in time okay, obviously so let, you know our borders are supposedly open but yeah that that definitely hasn't manifested itself yet in terms of you know a supply of labor so do you think either you know the feds moved last night um, and or the as you mentioned the strong employment data today does that sort of suggest that uh, you think the Reserve Bank here might be a little quicker uh, to raise interest rates or are we still going to talk more like sort of towards the end of this year? I mean, what's, what's your sense in terms of how, uh, how the Reserve Bank will act here now? Yeah, there's definitely a very stark difference in the relative appetite for delivering tightening um, between the Fed, which we saw overnight, um, and, you know, looking at the span of the members, um, the RBA, you know, um, as, you know, we've mentioned previously on, you know, on our segments before is really, you know, much more sort of apprehensive and is much likely to sort of tail the Fed. Um, and that's because, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the inflation impulse uh, domestically in Australia is also, you know, running at a like at a much lesser sort of um, you know a speed than say what we're seeing in the US. Um, so in that respect, look, I think you know, our view has been that August um, is most likely when the RBA um, will hike rates. So is that a, so the cash rate is currently uh, what, 0.1? So is your hike to yes. 0.25 or, or 0.5% yes. in, in August, right? What do you think? 2.25%. To, to, so 15 just a, basis points. Just 15 basis points, yep. And what's your next one after that? So where will we be by the end of the year, do you think? Probably, I think you will get two rate hikes this year. So, you know, we'll, we'll be back at about 0.5% yeah. by the end of the year. So the next hike will probably be in Q4, likely October. But I think the risk now, especially with that labour force data that we saw uh, on Thursday, i.e. today when we're recording, is obviously that the risk is skewed for them to come sooner. Um, there is, you know, potential that they could come as, you know, soon as May or June. Um, but politically sort of speaking, you know, there, there's a bit of contention there because, you know, that will be so close to an election um, and, you know, whether low likes to admit it or not, um, it, it could be, you know, somewhat sort of um, 
you know, I wouldn't say it's political suicide, um, but yeah, I, I think politically sort of speaking, it would probably be better or more preferred um, to go in August. But, you know, obviously that doesn't preclude the RBA. The RBA is meant to be independent of the government anyway. It's meant to be, I know. Uh, I'm sure it is most of the time. Um, so just tell, right. me, tell me about uh, sort of the bond curve. So, uh, and what's happening there in the Australian context. So. Um, how, are your views consistent with the market or are there people in the market expecting this to be a lot more aggressive in Australia? So just what, what's the market sort of, sort of the consensus view in the market about uh, the pace uh, and timing of interest rate increases in Australia? Yeah, really, really good question. I mean, just to be clear, we, we don't make any active bets on curve trades. Mm -hmm. So at Coolabar, we're 100% floating rate in the way that we operate things or we're generally neutral um, when we are managing any interest rate duration. So we're definitely not making any curve bets. But, you know, I suppose from a, a more sort of um, directional standpoint in terms of what we are potentially sort of thinking, our curve is still very much, you know, tracking what's happening offshore um, and what the latest yield curve moves are telling us is that there's been a bit of flattening um, and so what that is implying is that you know central banks are going to go you know going to go about hiking rates um, and whether you know Australia does sort of you know try and catch up with the rest of the world which is you know very likely to be the case although we do have um, you know certain idiosyncratic factors to do with the fact that our borders haven't been open um, but eventually once we do sort of catch up and if inflation continues to be you know quite a persistent issue which it obviously you know you know, I suppose the suggestion is that it is not definitely not transitory. That's definitely been a conversation that we've been having for quite some time. Then, you know, that would imply globally um, what market is pricing in is the risk of obviously, you know, the economic sort of slowdown down the track. So, you know, it's potentially likely that should we be, you know, be aggressively hiking rates, um, maybe not to the same extent as the Fed are, who are pricing in seven rate hikes. And then, as I mentioned to you, we're expecting two out of the RBA. Um, I think if we were to sort of follow the lead of the US, then yet yeah, our curves will continue to flatten. Um, so but, you know, obviously there's the, different uh, views then. So the flattening, of course, is that's where the uh, the shorter rates go up more than the longer rates, right? So sort of the curve. Yeah, is, so the, the front, what we call the front end reflects higher rates because, um, you know, central banks are forced to hike rates much sooner. So we see like the, the two-year or whatever, the three-year part of the front end of the curve. And then the way that we look at the back end is usually looking at 10-year. Um, the five-year is not really so much of a, a benchmark in Australia, but it definitely is in the US. So if we look at what we call the twos, fives, tens, we can definitely see a bit of flattening there because what the market is telling us is that because of interest rates being, you know, contractionary and tighter in the near term, say in the next two years, we get to a point where interest rates are so high, it actually has the impact of pulling back, um, you know, economic growth. And therefore, to compensate for that, um, interest rates are going to have to be lower in the future as a result, um, as, you know, central banks have to address the issue of recession. So there, the, the market is definitely pricing in the risk um, or the possibility of a recession down the track due to this contractionary policy. But, you know, having said that, there is no 
central banks have no option but to hike yeah. in order to combat inflation. So, so it, it sounds unlike like a, all the other times. It sounds like a tough balancing act for the poor old governor of the Reserve Bank because he's got, uh, can see what's going on overseas. He's got the question mark around, uh, you know, very tight labour market. We've got a little bit of inflation, maybe more inflation. He wants wages growth, yet at the same time, you know, Ukraine's perhaps and other factors might be, uh, you know, putting a dampener on growth. So it's, um, he's got to get it right. That's why he gets the big bucks, doesn't he? <laughs> He does, but I do think that he has time on his side. Like the, as I said, the inflation pulse is definitely not as strong here. Um, and, you know, we we still have, we've only just opened up our borders, yeah. really. And so that um, new supply of, you know, workers coming back into Australia is yet to sort of work itself out. And, you know, we, we could, again, be, you know, very lucky in the sense that that doesn't, you know, translate itself into, you know, wage inflation and then put more upward pressure on inflation. Obviously, um, both you and I would probably want our own wages to be higher. Um, but at the same time, I, I think, you know, that that temporary sort of, uh, I suppose, relief that is yet to work itself through our economy could provide quite a bit of respite um, and actually, you know, potentially slow down that inflation pulse. But we're yet to sort of see it. You know, immigration doesn't happen overnight, as yeah. um, we both know. So, you know, we, we have to sort of see this working through. You know, there's also the question of whether some of these immigrants have moved elsewhere. You know, for example, Canada have had open borders for a year now. Um, so, you know, there's a question of, you know, have other international students, have workers gone to a place like yeah. Canada, for example, instead? You know, yeah. that's a we very said, valid I think question. We, I think there's some discussion we may be frightened a few away. So we'll have to see what happens. But uh, <laughs> it sounds like that could be important to uh, check to both uh, helping growth growth, but also potentially leaving, relieving some of the pressures in the labour market. Ying Yi, thank you for joining us for that uh, very insightful analysis. Thanks for joining us on Switzer. That was Ying Yi An Chang from uh, Coolabar Capital.